a copy of today's message, the day known as Easter. I, um, I, I like this time of year, I like this particular Sunday service because it provides me a wonderful opportunity to help the Church of Christ grow in its understanding of history, God's history, and also uh, traditions and practices that surround us all as evangelicals. It's a wonderful time, even though uh, this message, uh, I put a lot of time into this years ago, and, and I, I, pu- I purposely pull it out at this time each year on Easter uh, to help, and I add to it, I adapt it some, so for those of you who have heard it, you're going to see a lot of the same material. There's some new stuff in here. But even though you hear it year after year, it helps provide you a reminder of how to interact with individuals in a way, as AJ was just describing, with humility, but being prepared to give an answer for your faith and why you practice your faith the way you do. I think we all would admit there's nothing more embarrassing than having a very well-informed atheist or secularist come at us with some of our own history as Christians and be side-blinded by it and go, "Uh, well, uh, actually, I didn't know that about my own history and why we observe certain days or do certain things. And, And you kind of feel like you've been made a fool of, you know. And so, especially young ones, if you're in a church that, according, as we're going to see here in a minute in Proverbs, we're not afraid to have conversations. We're not afraid to look at history. We're not afraid to look at traditions. We're not afraid as Christians ever to open up the Word of God and let God's truth, whether it's found in history or Scripture, bear upon anything that we do. Uh, we believe that truth is on our side unless we be deceived and we're, we're attempting to apply it in our lives Uh, then we're open for reform, we're open for correction, we're open to differently apply certain truths from the scriptures. And so, to help us kind of launch off into this, I want to show you how today, which is a little bit different than how I do messages, you know, we were expository preaching verse by verse, today's a little bit more topical, we'll be looking at some church history, some data from different sources, we'll be looking at a couple scriptures, so it's more of a topical type message, okay? Uh, But to get us launched off into that, I want to show you something, perhaps you already know this, perhaps you don't, um, about how this day, known as Easter, connects to a broader understanding of doctrine called the regulative principle of worship, all right? So to do that, let's get our pillars of truth here. Let's go to page 55. This is chapter 22 in the Second London Confession of Faith. Chapter 22 of our confession almost verbatim follows the Westminster Confession as well and also the Savoy Confession. The Westminster, of course, is used by uh, Presbyterians in the Reformed community and the Savoy by the Independent Congregationalists in the Reformed community. And all of us share chapter 21, or I'm sorry, chapter 22 uh, as an expression of how we understand God ought to be worshipped. So we'll just look at paragraph number one, because it sets up nicely going into this discussion. In light of nature shows that there is a God, 
The light of nature shows that there's a God. This is the stars and the heavens around us, young ones. It all declares God's glory. It shows us that there's a God who has the lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, this God is just, he's good, he doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, he's to be loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God, the Bible teaches, and it's not my purpose here to do a sermon on this doctrine, but the Bible does make it clear that he institutes by himself how he is to be worshipped. We see this very early on in the book of Genesis. And so limited by his own revealed will, his worship that he will be given, is limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped, he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and the devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations, that's of course idols, or any other way that's not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Now, that right there is just a real concise definition of what Protestant Reformed churches have attempted to try to apply consistently for the last 500 years. Because that's largely what the Reformation was about. It was, of course, about the five solas, justification by faith alone. But when John Calvin, when he was brought in before a council, and he was talked to about why he's being so consistent in Geneva, why he's being so, we would say it today, bullheaded, you know, in his demands of these reforms that needed to take place. He said largely because of the abuse of God's worship. And of course, in his historical context, we know that Catholicism at that time, Roman Catholicism in the West, had brought in all kinds of different things, right? And the reformers were saying, this is not in Scripture. God has not given us uh, revelation that he is to be worshipped this way. And you've added all of these things. They become a yoke and a bondage to God's people. And this is what largely is outlined in chapter 21 where A.J. was talking about, about Christian liberty. We've been set free from that. And it is against the Lord of conscience to bind another man's conscience with something that's not in the Bible. And that includes certain ways of worshiping. And so that, that was a large thrust I want you to see behind the Protestant Reformation, that we get back to worshiping God the way that he is revealed he wishes to be worshiped. Now, in that chapter 22, we could go on if we were doing a sermon about the regulative principle of worship. We could talk about their circumstances, you know, that are acceptable differences amongst different societies of people. But the prescription of how God is to be worshipped is universal amongst the entire church, Protestant reformers would argue. Okay? Now, children, I want you to understand that as Christians, okay, there's two ways or two categories you could think about worshipping. And so pastors, theologians, and others who really want to make sure they're worshiping God the right way. They have two categories. One is the regulated principle of worship. That's what we just read in our confession of faith. And there's one called the normative principle of worship. Real simple. Regulative or regulated principle of worship and normative principle of worship. And to figure out what the difference, it's so simple. The regulative principle of worship 
which I would seek to convince you of, says that, what our confession says, we should only as Christians worship God the way that he has revealed he wishes to be worshipped. So we can't take liberty and invent things and offer it up to God as worship. Whether it's a day, whether it's a ceremony, uh, no matter what it is, we have to be careful when we take something and we apply religious significance to it and we lift it up vertically to God and we say, God, we are worshiping you through this way. The regulative principle of worship says, no, you cannot do that unless God has explicitly commanded you to do it. So the normative principle says this. If God hasn't explicitly forbidden, you have liberty to worship him in all things, right? Now, under the normative principle, there are people that go really far with it. Some would say, you know, um, it's almost embarrassing what some people would do. And they would say, this is worshiping God. What's one example? This is an easy one. Sometimes low-hanging fruit is easy just to pick. Uh, Many of you have probably been concerned with what you've seen in some churches. Even today it's going on. There's going to be Easter dramas going on in the church, right? There'll be a platform and there's very gifted people in the church and they're going to dramatize the whole uh, passion of Christ and they're going to have a guy dressed up like Jesus and he's going to be murdered on the stage and all that stuff. And that's teaching the Easter story, right? That falls under the normative principle. And so they can be theologically justified in calling that worship because according to their theology, they say God hasn't forbidden us to do that. Now, the normative principle is exactly the same way that the Roman Catholics and the Greek Orthodox can say, we do Lent, we do these other things that you're not going to find in the Bible, but we do them because God has not forbidden them. And it helps us. It helps nourish our faith. It helps strengthen our souls. It helps us in our pilgrim's journey to follow Christ. So do you kind of see, kids, the the difference between the regulative principle, what we say, we only worship God how he has commanded us, and the normative principle, those who worship God in ways that God hasn't forbidden, they have liberty to do it. Does that make sense? All right. Now, I hope you see some relevancy as we're entering into the discussion of Easter now. Why at this church, the church you attend, on this day, you haven't heard anything leading up to it that it's Easter, even though you have cousins and aunts and uncles and everyone's talking about it. Why is it at my church we not, we're not talking about Easter? Why isn't Pastor Doug passing out lilies, you know, as we're coming into church or the, you know, that kind of thing? Why isn't the sisters in the church going to bake resurrection cookies and have them after church and so forth and so on, right? This is why. We hold to the regular principle of worship. And as we're coming into this conversation, I want Proverbs 14 to set the groundwork that beloved as Christians um, we, we, we don't have to fear having these types of talks and review our history and where we come from, okay? And at the very end, there's the application. So bear with me in all of this data that I've collected and we get to it. At the application, we land on an application that I hope continues to prepare you young ones in the church Year after year, as you grow up in a Reformed church and you hear these messages, it prepares you to give an informed and an educated response and a humble disposition in how to relate to other evangelicals and other people who are indeed Christians that hold to a different position than you. All right?
So that's ultimately why we do this, to prepare and to equip the saints to be salt and light in your different spheres of influence, in your family and in other Christians' lives that you perhaps work with. So now let us consider here a brief historical overview of the day known as Easter. Proverbs 14, 15, as you see in your handout there, says, The simple believes every word, but the prudent man looks well into his going. Every spring, the anticipation and excitement of the day called Easter, we know it's very exciting for millions of people, both Christians and non-Christians. In fact, many churches, among other activities, are, as I just alluded to earlier, preparing elaborate Easter programs that are going to illustrate and emphasize the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have no problems with that. We would say, praise the Lord. You ought to preach, teach the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. We know as well that there's going to be countless parents who take time to decorate Easter eggs. And this is fun, right? Covertly hide them around the yard. So the children are going to go egg hunting. I know if you're at uh, uh, a certain aunt and uncle in our family, there's going to be money in those eggs. So that's, those, are, those are the kids' favorite eggs to find. And who can forget the candy baskets? You know, I'm an adult. I still would like to get a candy basket, Brother Grizz. It wouldn't hurt my feelings if you bought, if you bought me a candy basket. Uh, I don't get them anymore. I like Snickers. But who can forget the candy baskets? Who, who, can, who can forget the special Easter outfits and, of course, the precious memory of when down at Murphy's. How many of you in here are old enough to remember Murphy's, the department store? Anybody? Used to be one down at Fountain Square. Yeah. Yeah, my mom made me go down to Murphy's at Fountain Square. I remember I, I was wearing a red T-shirt with a number 13 on it. It was like a baseball shirt or a football shirt. Maybe sit there and get my picture taken with the Easter Bunny at Murphy's. Who can forget that? Well, Easter is not only a big deal to Christians, but we know obviously it's a big deal to big business. And they're expected to ramp up around this time of year for all those baskets all those different activities, so forth and so on, costume, chocolate bunnies, to help celebrate this great, for many people, religious event. But what do, let's ask the question, what I want to work through, how did bunnies, how did color eggs, how did all this become attached in some way with Easter, a day commemorated to Jesus Christ's resurrection? And if the celebration is so important, why didn't Jesus teach his apostles in the early church to observe it? This venerated holy day, which is to be especially commemorating his resurrection. I think that's an appropriate question, because after all, the books of the New Testament were written over a span of several decades after Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Yet nowhere do we see so much as a hint of any kind of Easter celebration. So where exactly did Easter and all of its customs come from? I want you to know this history. I want you to have this. That way when the informed secularist or atheist on the airplane or the train ride around this time of year, when you're going to visit your extended family for an Easter meal, hoodwinks you and says something to you, and you'd be like, oh, dear friend, see, you've never talked to a Reformed Christian before, have you? And you can talk them through the history and the proper way to worship God. So where exactly did Easter and its customs come from? Why do hundreds of millions of people celebrate the holiday, the holy day, in our own day and age? Am I the only one here today 
who has thought about these types of questions? Am I the only type of Christian that's ever wondered about these things? There's so much emphasis about Jesus, 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 but yet Easter bunnies and eggs and other things, even in the church, it's emphasized in the church. Have I, am I the only one that's ever asked these questions but never dared to ask it because the crowd, the majority of the church seems to do it and I don't want to be the odd guy out? Well, that's a sad place to be in any Christian community where you feel like you cannot have honest conversations about traditions or about uh, quote-unquote holy days. Why don't we have more frank conversations about Easter? I'm on page two here. In part, I think it's because people value traditions and family bonding experience. And that's a good thing, friends. You should value family traditions and bonding experiences. But because of that, we tend not to dare to draw a focus on anything that may jeopardize or disrupt those cherished customs. That's the bad part. Remember Proverbs 14, 15. It's a good thing to want family traditions. It's a good thing to want to get together as family and have bonding time. But it's a bad thing to say, why do we do this, 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 mom and dad? Why do we do this, this? I encourage my kids, ask me questions. I'll tell you what my faith is. I'm going to pass it down to you. But you have to own it as your own faith. You have to be convinced in the word of God that it's true to you, right? We should be open to ask questions. We shouldn't be afraid to have conversations. Because fear that an honest examination of God's history as factually recorded and preserved for us throughout the chronicles of time is not the spirit of a prudent and a righteous child of God. Going back to what I said again, we, we, we don't have nothing to fear, guys. We know this from 2 Timothy. Look at the handout, 1-7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. So the very fact that we have a couple of people in here that have not heard me give this message, but if, we, if this was a typical Easter gathering and I went in, a pastor taking a serious discussion about Easter, I guarantee you 70% of the people would already have me turned off. Why? Because they think I'm going to say something that's going to take away from them their family tradition and their family bonding time. And I'm not going to give away the punchline at the end of the application, but don't do that. Don't turn me off. This, again, don't be fearful. That something's going to be taken away. Just listen, absorb it, and we'll make the application in the end. Brothers and sisters, we who bear the name Christian, Christianos, follower of the Messiah, who are in the sanctifying process of having our minds daily renewed, we of all people in the world ought to be the most independent thinking, inquiring, intelligent, reasonable individuals alive, even when it comes to the conversation of holy days. Perhaps in some Christian communities, there's a lack of maturity to lovingly, Patiently, biblically navigate through different applications of valid principles contained in God's word. But this also is just another form of the yoke of fear, which we as Christ's disciples have not been bound by, but rather have been set free from, as AJ was talking about in chapter 21, the laws, the traditions of men bounding on our conscience. We've been set free from that to now think and to have the rule of God's law and grace directing our minds and our lives. Now then, as I said, before you form your own conclusions prior to me revealing my own regarding the topic here of Easter and the Holy Day called Easter, please afford me the next several moments and work through this material. And we will find, I believe, at the end that we don't have anything to be fearful of. Let's start off with the question, can we find Easter in the Bible? The word Easter kids. Where did it come from? Well, it didn't come from the Bible. We'll find out where it came from, but it didn't come from the Bible. 
The word Easter is considered the most important, I'm not, not the word, the, 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 the custom, the tradition, Easter is considered the most important religious festival in today's Christianity. I'm going to quote here, you see, from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It says, quote, The Easter feast has been and still is regarded as the greatest in the Christian church since it commemorates the most important event in the life of its founder, Jesus. Well, given its popularity, one would think that surely traces of its name and its practice or customs would certainly be found in the Scriptures. We would think that. There are some who go to Acts 12.4. You don't have to turn in your Bibles. I gave it to you in the handout as an authority for celebrating Easter. Well, the problem is they can only do that in the authorized version. Because in the authorized version, Acts 12, 4, as you see in your notes, is translated this way. And when he had, and when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after, here's the word translated from the Greek into the English, Easter, to bring him forth to the people. But there's a problem here in that Easter isn't really mentioned here in this verse at all. The King James Bible translators substituted the word Easter into the English for the Greek word Pascha, which literally means, as you see in the Strong's there, Passover. And that's why the modern translations corrected this in future translations. And you won't find Acts 12.4 with the word Easter in there. It's just translated Passover, and that is a better translation. This all further substantiates the statement of the International Bible Encyclopedia that, quote, there is no trace of Easter celebration in the New Testament. Beside the word Easter, the earnest and the objective student of Scripture will indeed hunt in vain to find that Jesus ever taught his apostles and the early church to observe this custom or this tradition. Why, in fact, where one would expect to find it in the New Testament, they come up empty-handed. The books of the New Testament themselves were written, as I mentioned earlier, over a span of several decades, very shortly after the life, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And yet nowhere do we such as a hint of the Easter celebration. So where did Easter come from? This custom, before we zero in on the very word itself. We're not finding it in the New Testament. So young ones, do we have recorded history of other civilizations, etc., etc.? Because we know that our Bibles are focusing on one particular people group, don't we? God's church. We have the, the people of the Old Testament who are coming forward, bringing forth the Messiah. There's a very consecrated uh, focus upon them. And then we come to the New Testament and there's a very consecrated effort on what? The church. But there's tons of other pagan civilizations that are surrounding them. We hear hints of it. We've been hearing hints of it in Jeremiah, so forth and so on. So we hear a lot of hints of it. And this is really what informs of, of where some of these practices have originated from. Well, where did it come from? If Easter hasn't, isn't found in the Bible, where exactly did it come from? And just exactly how does the na- what does the name Easter itself mean? Prior to reviewing such logical questions, it's important that we go to credible historical resources to understand Easter's true history. One such, I would offer to you, I I don't know who would debate this, one such well-known and internationally respected source is the Encyclopedia Britannica. And as you see there in your notes, it informs us at Easter, 
Popular customs reflect something. They reflect many ancient pagan survival practices that are connected with spring fertility rites, such as symbols of Easter eggs and Easter hares or rabbits. And so there, you know, young ones, what the Encyclopedia Britannica is telling us is studying ancient civilizations is that some of these things we see associated with what we see today, eggs and rabbits or anything, are connected to what ancient people did during the springtime to worship or to celebrate the fertility of spring. Okay? Now what this does is this helps us further benefit from this information so that we understand that in the ancient world of the Middle East, people were far more connected to the land cycles of nature than they are today. You go to Walmart and you buy a chicken. You go to Walmart to buy your fruits and vegetables. But these people, they were very in tune with their surroundings in nature. They, they lived off the land, literally. And so you can imagine when springtime would come. They want a good harvest. They want to get ready for the growing season, so forth and so on. And since they lacked a knowledge of the one true living God, they worshipped nature itself. And they had all these other suspicious ideas and these other beliefs, mythologies connected with all of their survival practices associated with springtime. And so then, when spring's fertility returned to the land after a long, desolate winter, it is understandable, having a lack of knowledge of the one true living God, it's understandable that it would have been a much anticipated and welcome time each year. We do this in our neck of the woods here in the Midwest. We have fall harvest festivals. I don't think anyone's applying religious significance for carving a pumpkin in here, but you get the point. We get excited, don't we? It's nothing wrong with culture saying, hey, uh, it's, it's harvest time. Let's gather together. Let's work together. Let's get the harvest in. And let's cook a big old-fashioned Thanksgiving meal for doing it, right? However, they didn't do it like that back then. Unlike us Hoosiers today, they celebrated the coming of spring with celebrations that included the worship of pagan gods and goddesses, particularly those associated with fertility. Among such false gods that they worshipped at the time were Baal and Ashtar and Asherith. And these are mentioned and condemned frequently in the Bible. Just to help you see this, let's jump to 1 Samuel 7.4. You have it in the notes down at the bottom. 1 Samuel. Uh, kids, you know this. 1 Samuel is really chronicling and it's recording for us a bunch of history of um, Israel and Judah surrounded by these pagan cultures and these pagan places. And notice what was going on here in 1 Samuel verse seven, or, uh, chapter 7, sorry, verse 4. They did something good here. They were doing something bad previously. Chapter 7, verse 4. The children of Israel, they put away Balaam and Ashtoreth and served the Lord only. Well, this was a repeated problem for him. So you see, Ashtoreth, who is associated with bringing fertility during the springtime, helping the, rat, the bunny rabbits have a bunch of little babies, so forth and so on, they would worship Ashtoreth, and they would do other things to Ashtoreth, so that Ashtoreth would bring forth great abundance in the planting season. This was a repeated problem for the, for the Israelites. Let's go a little bit further in redemptive history to 1 Kings 11.5, and we'll see this again. And this helps you, I think, see that you know, God's people were surrounded by other 
cultures. They were surrounded by other cultures that had other traditions and other gods. And this really draws it out for us. They had associated with those gods certain practices, things of certain misunderstandings, especially as it relates to the fertility of the land and the blessings of the seasons. First Kings eleven five. I think Ashworth is here mentioned again. Yeah, this is in the context we know when Solomon he got a little sidetracked on this, uh, worshiping or being involved with these other gods. It says there Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after another god here, Milcom, the abomination, uh, abomination, sorry, abomination, the abomination of the Ammonites. This just helps us to kind of see, especially for you kids, to see that the practice at springtime of really recognizing the fertility of the land and adding religious significance to us goes way back to ancient times, all right? So we're just trying to ask ourselves, where did these practices and traditions come from? Well, it's a very ancient practice that at this time of the year, there's religious significance added to the fertility of nature. Coming back to my notes here on page 5, with this data, it seems to us only natural that these people of the ancient Middle East would also incorporate symbols that were familiar to them, which were associated with fertility, such as eggs. When a chicken has eggs, it really, it very rarely only has one. Unless you guys who raise chickens know when they first start laying, they only lay one. Uh, but they'll lay one, and then I think is it 24 or 40 hours. If you've got good layers, it's within 40 hours. They're laying another one, and then another one, and another one. And guess what? In the wintertime, they kind of clam up. They don't lay a whole lot. But, and you try to trick them. You put a light on out there, and some of you raise chickens are like, yeah, and sometimes it works, it don't work. But in the springtime, man, they just start laying. You start hearing the hens cackling, right? So it would be only natural that eggs become associated with spring fertility symbolism. That rabbits... Even though I was debating, me and Naomi were debating with Nolan this morning. He says, rabbits are active all year long. That's why I see rabbit tracks in the summer. We're like, yeah, but Nolan, they're mostly active in the spring because they're having the babies, and they're gathering the food, so forth and so on. So it's only natural. We understand that when rabbits have a litter, is it called a litter? A litter of rabbits. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of rabbits. Rarely usually they have in two or three. It's a bunch, right? So it's only natural that these things would be connected kids with religious worship as symbols to pagan gods during the springtime. It's just natural. We're not surprised then how these things became connected in some way with a time called Easter, this season of the year. As the Encyclopedia Britannica notes, Easter eggs and Easter rabbits are simply a continuation of these ancient spring fertility worship rites. Well, let's get away from the Encyclopedia Britannica for a minute. I want to draw your attention to a 19th century Scottish reform minister. His name is Alexander Hislop. He wrote a book called The Two Babylons. And many argue that it's still today considered a definitive work on the various pagan customs which have survived and still carried forward in today's religious practices amongst various religions, not just Christianity. And regarding Easter specifically in his book, The Two Babylons, you can see at the bottom, you can find it for free online. He says this, quote, What means the term Easter itself? He asked the question. You notice the reform guys are just never afraid to get into asking questions. He says, What means the term itself? It is not a Christian name. We just demonstrated that by looking in the New Testament. But it bears its Chaldean origin on its very forehead. 
Easter is nothing else than Astar, one of the titles of Beltus, the queen of heaven, whose name, as pronounced by the people of Nineveh, was evidently identical with that now in common use in this country. I assume there he's talking about Scotland. That name was found as Layard on the Assyrian monuments is Ishtar, um, and he's quoting some archaeologist there that found this ancient monument to Ishtar. Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary reports that the temples dedicated to Ishtar had many priestesses or sacred harlots who symbolically acted out the fertility rites of the cycle of nature. Ishtar is an archaeological, verifiable, it is a real ancient pagan god. There was a monument found. They did worship this way. Ishtar has also been identified with the Phoenician Ashtar. This is that false pagan god. Again, kids, I want you to just get a picture that you have the Jews, right? They're out there in the wilderness with the tabernacle. Then Solomon builds the temple. And they're always looking sideways. They're always seeing all of these different Ashtars and Balaam and all these things. And these people doing all this weird stuff with rabbits and eggs and, and all these other ceremonies and stuff. This is the picture that you're, that you're seeing here being painted as we're trying to understand where did we get this day Easter and these things connected with it. So Ishtar has been identified how? Well, with the Phocician Ashtar, the Semitic Ashtoreth, and the Sumerians Inanna. Like, that's how I'm going to pronounce it, Inanna. These, these names are, are something else. What do we see there? We see different culture groups taking different names but still during the springtime, because they lack a knowledge of the one true living God and know who controls all things, even the, the seasons, what are they doing? They're creating their own little idolatrous worship during springtime. And they're all doing different things. Uh, over here, this culture is doing this really, you know, uh, sensual, lustful thing with the worship of Ishtar. Over here, who knows what they're doing with bunny rabbits? Over here, who knows what they're doing, right? But the point is, is that the season, they were all worshiping and adding religious significance to um, their particular god. Moving forward, additionally, you see on page six, strong similarities also exist between Ishtar and the Egyptian Isis god the Greek God. These are all lowercase g kids. There's only one true living God. These are all false gods that they were worshiping. The Greek false god, Aphrodite, and the Roman goddess of Venus. And I'm just, you see they're working from the Nelson's Bible dictionary. This is an evangelical Christian Bible dictionary under the section dealing with pagan gods. All of these pagan gods had with them at the springtime some sort of weird religious ceremonies going on with them because of springtime of fertility. But what about the word Easter? We kind of see how some of these customs evolved, the traditions evolved, but what about the word itself? The name Easter and its celebrations concluding comes not from the Bible. Instead, its roots go far back to the ancient pre-Christian Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar, known in the Bible as Ashereth, or sometimes called Astarth. In fact, most historians, both secular and Christian alike, agree with Alexander Hislop's finding that Easter was originally, was originally a pagan celebration. That's what they were doing with it, right? We're not saying that the Jews and Gen- or the Jews and ancient Israelites were doing that, but the pagans were doing that. It originated there. No one's arguing about that. Everyone agrees with it. Anyone who's being honest and credible with the history. 
For example, according to new, new, the New Unger's Bible Dictionary, this is not the Nelson's one, the word in the practice of Easter in later centuries was adapted and used in other pagan cultures and celebrations. So it's coming from the Middle East, and now we're going to get up to the Saxons and the Anglo-Saxon area, right? Easter, quote, according to New Unger's Bible Dictionary, was observed by the Saxon tribes around the 3rd century, but their goddess was not called Ishtar. Their goddess was called Estra, their goddess of the springtime, in whose honor sacrifices were offered around, I believe this is by coincidence, I can't prove it, they're doing it because they're not Jewish, they're, they're, they're not trying to do it any time, but they offered it around the time of the Passover. Okay? But notice what happens on page 7 by the 8th century. The Anglo-Saxons adopted the name but they designated the celebration of Christ's resurrection in their own Christian practices. That's according to the New Unger Bible Dictionary. Although some disagreement does exist over precisely which pagan tradition Easter originated from, all scholars agree, I know it's, some of you don't like the word all, I, I think when there's 99 percent people that agree with it, I think it's safe to say all. Maybe I should change that to majority. Majority of scholars agree that it definitely emerged from pagan practices. Some of them, they, most of their disagreement is like, well, where did it come from? Which pagan practice? Was it the Saxons or was it this or was it that? But all of them recognize the traditions of Easter didn't originate from within the Church of Christ. Now, what about the whole idea of resurrection and Jesus? If this is originating with spring fertility things, well then how in the world does it get connected with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, this moves us into the section where we consider Easter's ancient resurrection celebrations. I'm going to quote from Nelson's uh, Illustrated Bible again. Associated with the worship of Ishtar and Ashtoreth, which we learned about a moment ago in 1 Samuel and 1 King, there was a young god that they worshipped named Tammuz. Tammuz is actually mentioned in Ezekiel 8.14. So the Israelites, they knew that there was a false god named Tammuz. And now I'm going to tell you what the, the Bible doesn't get into what they were doing, but we can see what they were doing in the worship of Tammuz. Right? Anthropologists and archaeologists They've done the, they saw this is what these people did when they worshiped Tammuz. This information helps you to understand how eventually the resurrection is tied to the spring fertility rites and traditions that the pagans were practicing. Okay? Associated with the worship of Ishtar and Ashtoreth was a young god named Tammuz. So you have Ishtar, she's the goddess. You have Tammuz, some kind of lower deity whose worshippers, when he was worshipped, considered him to be both divine and mortal. In Babylonian mythology, Tammuz died annually, and he was reborn year after year. And what this did in their mythology is it represented the yearly cycle of the seasons and the crops. And this pagan belief later was identified with the pagan gods of Baal and Anat and the Canaan religion. Interesting. Let me introduce you to Alan Watts as it ties in this whole guy to Moose. Alan Watts is an expert in comparative religions. He wrote a book that's called Easter. 
its story and its meaning. Now, Alan Watts, uh, admittedly here, unlike Hislop earlier, who was a Reformed minister, Alan Watts is not a Christian. He's a secular anthropologist. He studies all cultures and civilizations of ancient past, and he tells you the data that he finds. So that's what you're reading here. I want to be upfront about that. So whenever, why do I say that? Of course, whenever you're reading something like that, you've got to take it with just a little bit of sermon, right? But basically, his approach is, listen, I don't have an axe to grind here. Uh, uh, Christianity, that's your faith, that's fine. Islam, that's your faith. You know, he's just going to tell you what he sees from the ancient chronicles of archaeology. This is what Alan Watts says in his book, Easter, its Story and Meaning. Quote, It would be tedious to describe in detail all that has been handed down to us about the various rites or ceremonies of Tammuz, who's mentioned in Ezekiel 8.14, and many others. So basically what he's saying is we have a lot of data. Okay? But their universal theme in their worship of these pagan gods is, in connection with the resurrection whole narrative here, is the drama of death and resurrection. And it makes them the forerunners, he argues, of Christian, the Christian Easter. And thus, the first Easter services, as we go on to describe the Christian observance of Easter, we shall see how many of its customs and ceremonies resemble these former rites associated with the worship of Tammuz. Now, I always like to say something right here. I never forgot the first time in college I, uh, I had a, uh, an Assemblies of God, if I remember. He was apostolic faith. I can't remember. He was a young Christian guy. Uh, who was in my group? We had small breakout groups that you know we did projects together. And his name was Dwayne, and Ben and Dwayne grew up together in the same neighborhood. And Ben was a um, uh, Louis Farrakhan. What's that? What's that branch of Islam? You guys know what I'm talking about uh, the Black Islam Nation. Louis Farrakhan leads it, or he used to. I don't know where. Nation of Islam. Thank you, Mike. So Ben was an ardent disciple of the Nation of Islam. Think about the small group, guys. <laughs> yeah, Ben, Nation of Islam. Dwayne was apostolic faith, Pentecostal, spoken tongues and all that stuff. And you had uh, another guy, Randy, who was like uh, just a, a, a vehement atheist, right? And you had me, who I had some experience with church in the past, uh, was not a Christian, would not use God's name in vain, just kind of felt uncomfortable doing that. And I was... Wanting to know about it all. So I asked Ben a lot of questions. I asked Dwayne. I'd pit them against one another. I like to hear them debate, and you know what I'm saying? To try to see whose arguments were the most clever, so forth. And I never forgot the strength of Ben's argument against the Christian about the ancient records of other religions that had a story of resurrection in it. You follow me? What we're reading about here about Tammuz? There really was, before the birth of Jesus Christ, a belief of a God, lowercase g God, that the Mesopotamian ancient East people worshipped, and they believed that he would die and come back to life and die and come back to life. My first question would be like, well, where is this guy? Because I want to meet him if he's dying and come back to life every year, right? The catch is, is he probably really wasn't around walking around. It was like uh, there was an image of him and he was inside of a cave, you know, the black box or whatever. And you can't go in there, you know what I'm saying? But he's in there. You can trust us. He's in there. You can trust the high priest of that ancient religion. But I'll never forget, I had never heard that. 
And I was around Christians, you know, when I was a kid. I, I went to, you know, church on Easter. And I went to other places and I'm like, oh, wow, I've never heard that before. Wow, that puts a big question mark then, does it not, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It doesn't put a question mark at all on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not borrowing from ancient religions to create a new religion. This is what, as I was passing over, brother, just as a side note, this is what I was talking about. Kids, I'm sharing this with you as a form to build up the confidence that you have the truth, the one and only truth in the one and only living God who's revealed himself through Jesus Christ. Because I'm telling you this because when I was talking to Pastor Sukumar, I was asking him how he approached, I was learning a lot about Hinduism, and I was asking him how he approaches you know, witnessing to Hindus and so forth and so on. Hindus actually say... Christianity began in the New Testament time period. And they say, oh, the Trinity? See, that's you guys as Christians borrowing from Judaism, the one true living God, but blending it with our Asian religions because they believe in a multiple... Uh, I think Pastor Sukumar said last time someone counted like 326 million avatars, manifestations of the one true spirit God. They say, you Christians with the whole Trinity thing, what you're doing is borrowing from us, borrowing from the Jews and forming one religion. And I said, well, brother, don't they understand? Christianity, our claim is, is that we are the most of ancient of religions. Our religion started in the garden. Our religion started in the promise from the one true living God that someday a seed is going to come. And the rest of the Bible is telling that one true story about that one Messiah who does eventually come and what? As the redemptive record shows, he rose from the dead. It's all by faith. We talked about that last week as the basis of our epistemology. But if you want to go read Lee Strobel's book, A Case, who was an atheist, because he was an atheist who wanted to disprove the resurrection of Jesus, unlike Tammuz, or Tammuz, however you pronounce his name, Jesus was, nobody debates that Jesus was a real living man who had brothers and sisters. Uh, they were his half-brothers and sisters, of course. No one's disagreeing that he was a real historical figure. We'd be real hard-pressed, though, to find siblings, parents of Tammuz and who claimed that. You follow what I'm saying? So when you hear ancient religions like this that practice the resurrection, well, the whole concept of being dead, coming back to life year after year, it automatically ought to make you be suspicious and ask some more questions well, if he did that, where is he today? Where's Tammuz today if this was real? You see, your Christianity don't have to be shaken by some of these ancient things. All we're doing is introducing how in the world did resurrection ever get tied into this day, this season called Easter. That's all we're doing before we even get to how it comes into the Christian community. It was through Tammuz. Page 8 here, back on track. Watts goes on to convincingly, I think convincingly, you can find this book online as well, demonstrate that many practices which are still reverently observed by millions of Christians today on Easter, such as fasting during Lent, erecting an image of deity in the sanctuary, I hope no Protestants are doing that, even though many probably are, singing songs of mourning, lighting candles, and nighttime services. I think this is pretty general, don't you, amongst most evangelicals today? All of this, doing this before Easter morning, originated in some way with these ancient idolaters' practice. They had, you can trace them back, and that's kind of where it started. 
even though we'll get to the part where it transitions and being practiced and adapted by the Christian community, or you could say Christianized. We'll get to that in a moment. Before we do that, let's look to kids. You, everybody ought to know this name, especially you young kids. Sir James Fraser. Sir James Fraser. He's an author and Scottish anthropologist who's often considered as the founding father of modern anthropology, the studying of ancient civilizations. This is the guy who started it all. Smart guy. He's well regarded for his contributions to our understanding of ancient religions. Described, he describes the ancient he describes the ancient idolatrous worship of Tammuz this way. Quote, I'm only presenting this because you're hearing the similarities of what eventually gets adapted by the state church religion, eventually in Rome. The sorrow of the worshipers was turned to joy. Their God had risen again from the dead, and the priest would whisper in the ears of the glad tidings and yet another year of blessings. The resurrection of their God, Tammuz, was hailed by the worshipers as a promise that they would issue triumphant from the corruption of the grave and on the morrow the resurrection was then celebrated with a wild burst of glee at Rome and probably elsewhere the celebration took the form of a festival and that's quoted out of his book he wrote The Golden Bough big 12 volume set uh, dealing with laying the groundwork of how to do anthropology this study of ancient civilizations here's where it turns the corner of redemptive history we're just trying to get up to where you are today where we are at today as evangelicals. I'm working now on page 9 under the title, A New Celebration with Ancient Idolatrous Roots. It's a new celebration, but we've already demonstrated it has ancient idolatrous roots. In various forms, worship of this ancient Babylonian god under the names Tammuz, Adonis, and Iadis, among others, spread from the outer reaches of the Roman Empire now into Rome itself. Rome had always had its own little set of gods. But now these ancient Mesopotamian practices have made its way into Rome. And it's here where a truly remarkable development took place that that is associated directly with you. Early Roman churches, these are Christians. This is before the year 1100 to 1200 where now what we know as Roman Catholicism really begins to take form and shape. This is the church. There was We're not saying Roman Catholicism. Don't think the Pope. Don't think that when you're reading this right here. The early Roman church, they had a lot of things wrong, but they still had a lot of things right. The leaders there, they merged customs and practices associated with this earlier resurrected god, Tammuz, which you were coming into the empire. People are familiar with these practices. They, 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 They were worshiping these false gods. And they took those practices and they associated the spring fertility celebrations and applied them to the resurrection of the one true God, Jesus Christ. The customs of the ancient fertility and resurrection celebrations weren't the only ones that were morphed into a new quote-unquote Christianized celebration. But by far, they were among the most obvious because after all, Many historians readily admit the pagan origin of the name Easter and its ancient fraternity symbolism of rabbits, decorations, so forth and so on, is connected insignificantly, or not insignificantly, but uh, undeniably with the ancient pagan rites. So you kind of can see how this happens. 
what, what, what we're saying, if we can't find it in the New Testament, but we know all the cultures around the church that's really growing strong in Rome and has its capital in Rome, and people are coming there, and they have these celebrations, they have these traditions, they have these old beliefs, but we cannot let them understand that that Tammuz is a real God. No, what you need to understand is that Jesus Christ is the one true living God. He's the one that all redemptive history was pointing to. Dear friend, you could just hear the, the pastor in Rome talking with a, a poor person that came from one of these um, you know, cultures. And, and he's asking him the basic question, hey, can, can you take me to Tammuz? Is he still alive today? Oh, yeah, you know, pastor, I never thought about that. Yeah, that's so ridiculous. How did I ever believe that? And then they come to the truth. But when they came to the truth, you're not going to strip away from them centuries upon centuries of tradition with their family, so forth and so on, of celebrating the spring fertility rites. And so what was the easy remedy for the pastors in the church of Rome? Whether you agree with it or not, no one's questioning their intentions. I don't think anybody's ever questioned their intentions. They had good intentions. Hey, listen, these poor people are just worshiping the wrong God. Why not just help them worship the right God and keep the same day. It's a, it's a holy day for them. Let them keep it. But we'll teach them to worship Jesus on this holy day and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and not the false God. So that's kind of how it came into the early Roman church. We'll get to that in a moment. It wasn't without contest. There were some people that went back and forth. But eventually that, 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 that thought of allowing it to happen and blending it wins out. Regarding this Christian rebranding of previous pagan practices such as Tammuz, Sir James Fraser observes, when we reflect how often the Christian church has skillfully contrived to plant the seeds, I think his wording there, I don't care for it, but he is accurate, has skillfully contrived to plant the seeds of faith on the old stock of paganism, we may surmise that the Easter celebration of the dead and risen Christ was grafted upon a similar celebration of the dead and the risen Adonias. That was the Roman uh, goddess that they worshipped in Rome itself. And notice what he, his choice of language there. Uh, you know, I, I didn't, I don't, I don't know, I don't have any reason to believe this guy was a Christian, but he says skillfully contrived. I don't like that language because it makes it sound like to the reader that the Christians have some kind of like mischievous ill intent, you know, in doing that, right? No, I believe that the pastors were sincere in Rome. I believe that they, they thought they were doing the right thing. But instead of saying, hey, um, dear friend, you know, uh, we have the Lord's Supper and this is how we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of the one true living God, so forth and so on. Um, so you cannot, you know, be trying to... Uh, make an extra holy day. God hasn't commanded us to do that. So instead of trying to walk a young disciple through that, they said, let's just keep it and let's put a Christian meaning to it because it's the true meaning of, you know, Christianity is true. And, and let's just move forward. That's kind of how it's happened. This is what Fraser and many other historians argue. How this day to begin with, this special holy day in the liturgical calendar was ever set aside to, 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 to worship God regarding Jesus' resurrection. He goes on to note that the desire to bring heathens into the official religion of the empire without forcing them to surrender their idolatrous celebrations, quote, may have led the ecclesiastical authorities to assimilate the Easter festival of the death and resurrection of the Lord to the festival of the death and resurrection of another Asiatic god which fell 
at the same season. It could very well be that the church may have conscientiously adapted the new festival of Easter to its heathen predecessor in an attempt to win souls to Christ. And that's probably the case. Interestingly, moving on here, the official church sanction and observation of Easter and on what day didn't finally become a sanction, meaning that it was a church law until 325 years after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. So 325 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, did the church take a stance that this is now church doctrine, going back to chapter 21 of what A.J. was talking about in Liberty of Conscience. The church did not have the right to tell its members, today is a day that we will observe as a holy day, and if you don't obey it, you're in sin. And back then, they did tell them just like that, you know. Today, it's more, you're made, it's by implication, you know, if you don't observe a holy day. You're never, no one's going to be real straightforward and like tell you you're in sin, uh, so forth and so on. But, but it's kind of, you know, made to feel like you, you're doing something wrong if you don't observe it, right? So notice that 325 years goes by. Then the church takes a stand that you have to worship it. And now it can enforce it because it has the, the, the state behind it. It has the Roman Empire behind it. They're wed at this time, by this time in the 4th in the century. And so now whatever the church says, the citizens have to do. As the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church to this day explains in its section entitled The Liturgical Year, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, all the churches agreed that Easter, we already know where the name come from, we already know why, it was, why this ever come up and why it was an issue to be dealt with, it should be celebrated on the Sunday following the first full moon after the vernal equinox. Up until this time, many believers had continued to commemorate Jesus' death through the resurrection Passover, more commonly known as we call it the Lord's Supper, as Jesus is in his, instructed his apostles to do and recorded in Luke and 1 Corinthians. The reason it was addressed by the Council of Nicaea, you've got to ask yourself, well, why did they feel the necessity to make it a law, make it like a requirement? You've got to understand the backdrop of what was going on. The reason it was addressed by the Council, because the Council only heard serious issues that were causing trouble in the church, was that many Christians in the East contended that, an, that any annual liturgical remembrance of Christ's resurrection, which again is being coming into the church and now causing it to have these conversations, ought to be at the time of the year associated with the Passover in Scripture. So all of this influx into the church, if we're going to be doing something like this, we contend at least let's have some biblical ground to do it at a time that makes sense with the Jewish Passover. That seems like when we would want to do it. And so it goes to the Council of Nicaea. Council of Nicaea says what we're going to do is we're going to pick this day, uh, so forth and so on, and we're moving forward, no questions asked. The noted historian of the early church, Eusebius, I got a copy of his book with me here. If you don't have this book, very, very interesting book. He is the earliest church historian we have. Of your history as a Christian, this is your church history. Earliest account you have, Eusebius. He helps us in this area. He says this, The noted historian of the early church, Eusebius, in his famed ecclesiastical history says, quote, The diocese of Asia, as according to an older tradition, thought that they should observe the 14th day of the moon, meaning Nisan, this was the day of the Passover, because 
if we're going to do this, it needs to be associated with Passover. In fact, this was the position of Polycarp, who was a direct disciple of the Apostle John, a martyr of the faith and commonly known as the second century heretic fighter, which led him into a controversy over this issue with the then pastor or bishop of Rome. Regarding this interesting debate between these two early church leaders, Irenaeus, who was an early church historian as well, says this, quote, and I think this applies to what A.J. was talking about earlier in Romans 14. When the blessed Polycarp was sojourning in Rome in the time of Antiochus, and although a slight controversy had arisen among them as to certain other points, what was that? It was this issue. Neither could... Ancius persuade Polycarp to forego the observation in his own way inasmuch as things as these things had been always observed by John the disciple of our Lord and by other apostles with whom he had been conversant nor on the other hand could Polycarp succeed in persuading Ancius to keep the observance in Polycarp's way and in this state of affairs they held fellowship with each other key Romans 14 issue, by way of showing one another respect. And so here you got two guys, the one in Rome, wanting to mandate it as a law at this particular one time of the year. Polycarp saying, no, let's just keep doing the Passover meal, the Christian that the Lord Jesus instituted for us. And they're having the disagreement. But they were willing to say, even though we disagree, you want to have it particularly at that time of year. I don't think it makes sense, so forth and so on. I'm going to do it this way. As part of the last words of his response sent to the church in Rome about changing the date of the Christian Passover to what becomes Easter Sunday, Polycarp says, quote, I therefore, brethren, who have lived 65 years in the Lord and have met with the brethren throughout the world and have gone through every holy scripture, am not affrighted by terrifying words. For those greater than I have said we ought to obey God rather than man. So Polycarp is standing his ground. He's going to continue to practice the Lord's Supper. And if the church at large wants to venerate any particular day of remembering this, he's saying we ought to be doing it on Passover, during Passover, around the Jewish Passover time. However, now with the power of the Roman Empire and the Emperor Constantine behind it, the bishop of the Church of Rome in the West began to slowly enforce its preference for the observance of Easter. And as for those who wished to continue to simply observe the Christian Passover, the Lord's Supper, they had to go underground to avoid any threats of persecution or alienation. I gave you a key term there. You can look them up this way. There's a history behind this group of people that were identified with Polycarp, uh, named as Quattro di Communions. That's Latin, obviously. That was a way of coining their position that was against the enforcement of Easter. Okay, I know this is getting long, but here we go. We're getting closer to our time here. The evolution of Easter. So this is where in the 4th century we kind of understand why Christians are even talking about a venerated day, why they're talking about a holy day. They know it wasn't in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul didn't command it. The Lord Jesus didn't. We had the Lord's Supper, but you know we got these people coming in. They're coming to all these traditions. They need some help. They're washing these, first go- these false gods. They're not going to let go of these you know, these privileged customs, traditions they have around this time of year. So why don't we just Christianize the whole thing and say glory be to God? That's where it started. Brother, sister, I, this, this, all the evidence points to that's what happened. 
That's how we began to venerate a particular holy day that's nowhere in the Bible. Whether you agree with it or not. I think the historical data leads us to that conclusion. But what about the evolution of it since the 4th century? This is where we're at today. Since the time of its emphasized observance, the celebration of Easter by Christians around the world has never been uniform in its manner or its method of practice. Without a regulative principle of worship from the scriptures guiding their practice, many have invented various ways to observe and celebrate the resurrection of Christ. That's what we call, young ones, the normative principle that I was starting off with. That's why it's not particularly a set pattern. The Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, they have a very strict liturgy, so theirs is very uniformed. But in the evangelical community, it's like whatever, whatever goes, goes. Whatever's going to bring the crowd, goes. That's why it looks so different in so many places. Nolan would love to fill you in on all the different things. He was telling me some things that he's been hearing. Um, and I'm not, I was going to share them, and I thought about it. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to share them, because I'm not sharing these things to mock. You know, that goes against what AJ was saying in Romans 14, brothers and sisters. Uh, when we talk about resurrection cookies, I saw there was a couple laughs, and I mean, when Nolan was telling me about that this morning, the hiding the marshmallow inside and all that stuff to teach a lesson, we were kind of laughing. But, you know, really, you know, really that's not right. That's not right. Um, because, you know, AJ was talking about Romans 14, that's how they're doing something to try to help themselves remember the resurrection of Jesus. I just want to make sure that they understand. That <laughs> be, be, be real careful, brothers and sisters, what you're applying religious significance to. Because you don't want to be eating. Well, they say the marshmallow dissolved, and so you're not really eating Jesus. But you kind of you see what I'm saying? I, I, and I know what people probably hear this online, or even some of you are thinking, like, well, you know, Pastor Doug, wow, that's really, you know, splitting hairs, telling people they can't bake resurrection cookies and so forth and so on. And I'm not saying that. I'm not necessarily saying that. What I'm saying is, is, brothers and sisters, be super, super careful that you're only worshiping God the way He has commanded you because He does care how He is worshipped. And there could be a conversation about how the cookies are doing that or not doing that. And it's not wrong to have those conversations. I don't know why evangelicals are so quick to just do whatever in the normative principle without asking the questions. It seems like we never ask the questions. If we were to ask the questions, maybe it would keep things more in line and not from getting out of hand, such as we see today. And I think it's okay to give a concerned pastoral observation of what things concern us today. For instance, there's the elaborate processions. There's the drama skits. There's the things that we have, such as Lent now being practiced by Protestants or encouraged by Protestants. That has heavy significance in it, religious-wise. That does concern me. I, I believe that God does not ask for him, Himself to be worshipped this way. So there's this heavy insist. And I just want to know if, we're, if they're focusing on Lent so much, when is Mardi Gras and Fat Tuesday in that same tradition going to be followed by Protestants? You see, it's right around the corner we start picking that stuff up. Um, Many, this is real big amongst the Assemblies of God, not painting too much of a broad brush, but you can look it up. The international, uh, the international Assemblies of God denomination are actually sending out manuals for how local churches can practice the celebration of the booths and the feast days of Judaism. 
You see, the regular principle of worship keeps us from getting off into these silly ditches that are always beckoning for us because the simple means of grace for God's people, as it was in the Old Testament, seems not to be enough. And so we have to have this. We have to have this. We have to have this. Why? Because we think it's about us. And it's not about us. It's about worshiping the one true living God the way he's commanded us through the means that he's given us to be worshiped. It's as simple as that. Despite years and years of these man-made traditions, the modern Christian with the more extensive access to information over the last century, I would say that's a mistype. It should be the last couple decades, last 20, 40 years, especially the last 10, more than ever has begun to question such traditions. And it's good to question them. Um, and their problematic roots in paganism, and in fact have begun to shift away from the use of the word Easter altogether. Do you guys, have many of you been Christians over the last 15, 20 years to remember when this all happened? Once you would commonly hear, I remember coming into church, going to churches on Easter as a boy, hey, happy Easter, happy Easter. Easter. But I remember in our home church, the Bible study chapel, there was one brother that came in and where the whole church, it was kind of a consensus, you would say happy Easter, one brother was like, oh, no, 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 you cannot say that. You have to say Happy Resurrection Day. Why, brother? Why are you changing the whole tradition of the church here? I mean, we've been doing this forever. Well, because, don't you know the history? And he'd lay out the history. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it should be called it. I mean, we don't want to be connected with Estra and Ishtar and all that other stuff. So, yeah, no, I don't want to say Happy Easter. It's not even a biblical word, right? It has pagan con- concepts, et cetera, et cetera. And so we changed that. As expected, though, with any long practice of tradition, many detest the idea of ridding from our religious Christian language the more common and traditional phrase, Happy Easter. And they'll hardly defend that. And so you still hear a lot of people use that phrase. However, consider this quote from a former and influential evangelical. This is Mason. I know we got some uh, Macon, Mason, always get his last name right. But this, uh, this, I think we got a couple of them here that really like him. Uh, Brother Grizz, you tell me you were reading a book by Mason not that long ago. This is a quote from him. I got this from him. Listen to what he says. Now, this guy is a 20th century reformer. He was, in the, he was early on in the fundamentalist movement. He didn't mark himself as a fundamentalist. But, he, but he, uh, he started that whole, he started the entire fundamentalist modernist controversy movement, Macon did. Listen to what he said. The hallmark of an authentic... And young ones, young ones in the church, this is what I want you to get. Going back to Proverbs 14 and 15. As a Christian, you don't walk in fear. You don't walk in such a way that you can't ask questions and challenge things that you don't believe are commanded of you by God. You be a reformer in your own day. You be a reformer moving forward no matter what uh, marriage you go into, no matter what family you are married into, Lord willing, if that's His will for your life, or what church you end up and you're not here, you're somewhere else. I want you to have this, this, this right here. The hallmark of an authentic evangelicalism is not the uncritical repetition of old traditions, but the willingness to submit every tradition, no matter how ancient, to fresh biblical scrutiny and, if necessary, reform. Now, young men in the church, older men in the church, that doesn't mean you've got to come in with an axe. Like A.J. was saying in Romans 14, 
I'll never forget. Now, I'm going to get myself in trouble. I get on these topical messages. This is why I like verse by verse because I start rambling. But let me just share a story with you what I mean here. The RBFI, Reformed Baptist Fellowship, some years ago was contacted by an American Baptist church downtown Indianapolis. And they said, hey, our pastor was just arrested. He was doing something illegal in his basement. I'm not going to go into details, but he was growing something illegal in his basement. Okay, right. He was arrested, and we need someone to come and help us as a church. We heard you guys were a Baptist fellowship, et cetera, et cetera, so you sent a pastor over here. So we had one brother go over there, and he preached. Well, he was, you know, he worked and so forth. He couldn't be there every Sunday. Do you have, can we rotate some guys? And there was one guy that said, hey, listen, I'd love to go over and preach, but those people, they have a mural of Jesus hanging up behind the pulpit. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's a big, bad no-no. That's like idolatrous. That's a violation of the second commandment. Now, brothers, you may disagree with me on this, but I told that brother, I said, they've never been taught, man. They've never been discipled. They don't know you. If you go in, they're reaching out and saying, we want someone to teach us the Word of God. Because we told them, you know, you're contacting a Reformed Baptist Fellowship. These guys preach straight from the Bible. They don't, you know what I mean? They're going to tell you what, <laughs> what the Bible says. We were trying to get them to see we're not American Baptists is what we were trying to get them to see. So we don't want to waste your time. No, no, no. We just want somebody to come and preach God's Word. That's all we want. He doesn't have to jump through hoops and do this circus and all this stuff. So I simply told him, I said, like, brother, they just don't know. You have to do what I'm doing today. Not be afraid to talk about Easter, but when the opportunity presents itself, and this time of the year it presents itself, we get to have talks. And most of the time when I do this talk, usually after church I'm spending another two hour, two hour talk about application and working through it. Because that's what we do as ministers of the gospel. We work through things. And so what I would say to him was like, hey brother, don't go in there with an axe. Go in there with a precision knife. But the moment you touch the nerve with truth, and they smack your hand away. No, 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 no. You're not going to take that out. No, you're not going to take that diseased part of my body out, you know, in the church life. You're not going to touch that. I'd say, I'd lay my scalpel down and say, okay, I'm done here. You see? I, you let me operate only so far. But we've got to deal with this one thing, and I'm going to show you the Word of God where the scalpel's got to touch it. And if you don't let me touch it, then my work is here because, you know, I'm a surgeon with the, with the ministry of the gospel. Not here to appease this mural that Sister, you know, Bethany painted 15 years ago and donated $5,000 to the church. You get what I'm saying? We got to deal with that. And eventually he went there and he preached. And guess what? He's their pastor. And guess what else? That mural ain't there no more. Amen? Yeah. The hallmark of an authentic evangelicalism is not under critical uh, repetition of old traditions, but the willingness to submit every tradition, however ancient, to fresh biblical scrutiny and, if necessary, reform. And let that be you and me, brothers and sisters. I'm coming to the end here. I, for one, as a reformed evangelical, am thankful for the honesty that is being admitted among many with the historical record and the problem that it presents for those who consider themselves evangelical and claim as their spiritual forebearer, sola scriptura, meaning that the scriptures alone are what guide our faith and our practice, and according to their conscience, they choose to refrain from the use of the term Easter or even its practice. I respect those people. I don't look at them like they're weird or backwards or crazy. 
Moreover, with the regret, I also must express my, my concern regarding the, the attempt by some among modern evangelicals to indiscriminately incorporate many, if not all, the practice of Easter into their Sabbath worship. So, you know, the guys that, that don't want to observe it at all don't even use the word. I can respect that. But just as just on the other side, my concern really is the people who want to incorporate everything into the Sabbath worship, right? It's one thing to preach a resurrection sermon on Sunday. Glory be to God. But all this other stuff that's coming in on the Lord's Day, practiced by many churches, I think that it's okay to ask the questions, why are you doing that? But just be prepared. They're going to say we practice the normative principle. So it's a no holds bar. We can do whatever we want. Here's one clip I got. This is just an expression of it. Again, if this is... This is where the normative principle can lead. I don't want to sound too broad brush. It doesn't always lead there, but most of the time it leads there. Here's a clip from a, a, a website on, on church for this Sunday. Quote, Having decided where to go to church on Easter, I'd like to invite you to Fusion Christian Church. We will have Easter snacks, Easter egg hunt for the kiddies, and an Austin photo booth with the Easter bunny. A clean and a safe environment for your kids. An amazing sermon given by our pastor. What I don't like about that what I don't like about that is what is the emphasis? Your fun. All about you and your kitties. Or your kiddos, they said. No, they said kitties. But, but, but thankfully, there's going to be a sermon at the end there. You saw that. Our pastor's going to give a sermon at the end. This is where the normative principle leads. Friends, I hope you're convinced that this isn't good for us. I hope you're convinced that, yeah, Pastor Doug, in the Reformed Church, the regular principle of worship, it seems the most consistent with the, with, the, with, the, with the sola scriptura doctrine, with the regular principle doctrine, how we understand it, so forth. And there will be a time where we actually will do a sermon series on the regular principle of worship. And I'll seek to convince you from Scripture that this is the right way to worship God through the means of grace that He's given us. That we don't have all these liberties that people take today, which really in a lot of ways, friends, I think you would agree, that's probably why you're coming to this church, that is part of the problem of where we're at as the church. We're getting the focus off of Christ and our own pleasure and fun. It's not about our pleasure and fun. It's about worshiping Him in the way that He's called us to worship Him. And oh, brothers and sisters, isn't He worthy of it? He is worthy to worship Him in the simple ways He has given us. With certainty we can say, insofar as we continue to reject the historical Protestant orthodoxy, doctrinal framework of the sufficiency of Scripture and its regular principle, and guiding us in our practice and our faith, the observance of Easter will continue to evolve in the coming decades. Who knows what's coming down the road? Well, I am going to skip an important part of this talk because it's getting very long here. I thank you for your patience. You have my notes. I asked the question, would any of Christ's apostles celebrate Easter? Um, there's overwhelming evidence that they wouldn't. But it saddens me because this is really kind of the most encouraging part of the talk for what we practice here at this church um, basically, in a nutshell, this argues the position of Polycarp. This argues the position of the apostles. They celebrated the, the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection through his appointed means known as the Lord's Supper. And brothers and sisters, that's what we do every Sunday. We have, as if it were, a celebration of the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection 50 to 53 times a year. The problem isn't the means of grace God's given us to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. The problem is the melancholy and sometimes just going through the motions of our flesh and our, and our hearts, isn't it? But when, today, 
Today, when, you, when you're taking the bread and when you're taking the cup, you are acknowledging what Jesus says, do this until I come. Oh, you mean the death isn't, the, isn't it? No, that's not it. Because I'm going to live after this. I'm going to raise from the grave and I'm coming back. Every single time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're remembering that promise that he has risen victoriously, triumphantly. And he is, as we're learning in Hebrews, sitting on the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, caring, providing for, watching over, etc., etc. His people. And he will consummate it and bring it all to an end, some glorious day. We do that every Sunday. That's what the apostles were doing every Sunday. So never ever let a family member, another Christian co-worker, make you feel somehow or in a way that you're minimizing the importance of Jesus' resurrection because you don't worship God on a venerated holy day that has no no substantial basis in Scripture. Don't let them make you feel like you're minimizing the remembrance of Christ's resurrection because you would say, well, you know, friend, I don't know if you know the history, but it, you know I got a 20-page handout I can give you, and I can kind of talk to, with it through you somehow how, how you come to this. And obviously, you probably follow the normative principle of worship. Have you ever considered doing that could lead to this and this? Well, why are you inconsistent in your application on the normative principle? You see, the questions are endless. And they're going to see, wow, you are the most consistent, logical thinking, resurrecting Christ exalting worshiper that I've ever met in my life. You remember his resurrection every single Sunday. You only worship him the way he's commanded you to do. And you're not afraid to talk about it. That's right. Because it's not that complicated. It's pretty easy. But now the real question comes, and we've got to end here. I wish I could have spent more time on the Lord's Supper. But here's the application. Should you observe Easter? Should you? I believe at this point it would be unthoughtful if not unloving for me to not at least to offer some help regarding the application of all of this church history. And these biblical, we've considered some biblical principles from the Lord's Supper and the means of grace, the regular principle, we've considered that, how the Lord commands to be worshipped. But prior to do so, allow me to clearly say that I am not the Lord over your conscience. That is reserved to God himself. And he has given you and I his revealed word, which is to be the only rule and the director over your conscience. So I'm about to make an application, but I'm doing it with the preface that I'm not the Lord of your conscience. I can help guide. I can help. Uh, I mean, I've done a lot of homework with this. Uh, you probably have done a lot of homework. You can you know, invest in my life. I can do some uh, interpretive work in the Bible for you, you see. But God's the Lord of your conscience to guide you in these decisions. I've laid a lot of information today. Hopefully you agree with it. I am, however, a commissioned and ordained servant of him and an under-shepherd and messenger who wishes nothing more than to speak and to guard his holy scriptures and help his thirsty and hungry lambs understand its meaning. That's what I just said. So then it's not for me to tell you a rule list for how and your family observes the day that many call Resurrection Sunday, or many still call Easter. It's not for me to tell you a list of what you can or cannot do, unless you are doing something that outright violates God's law. Then, for, out of truth and love, 
according to the one another's in scriptures, especially as me as a minister, I am bound to come to you and say, I believe you're sinning in doing what you're doing. You understand what I'm saying? So it's not my job to give you a list of things you can and can't do. Only when one of those things violates the law of God, then I would have to come because I love you and seek to show you in the Word of God how that violates the Word of God. I think it's safe to assume, after saying that, that none of you in here on this day are practicing egg decorations because you believe it's going to increase the production of your backyard gardens. I think you probably pray and ask God to do that, right? I don't think any of you are doing that. I think you're doing it because it's fun to do. It's, your kids like to do it. They like to get the paint out. So forth and so on. You remember the ones they used to dip down in the boiling water and it would form that? Yeah, you guys remember those? I don't even know if they still make those anymore. Nor do I believe any of you are trying to trap a rabbit to keep it or sacrifice it because you believe it's going to increase your chances of becoming pregnant as they did to Ashtar and Ishtar back in the ancient, ancient Mesopotamian days. You're not doing that, right? In other words, what I'm saying to you is you are not applying religious significance to it. You cannot help it if ancient pagans did it. You're not doing that. You have the truth, as AJ said. You can eat the meat that's been sacrificed to idol because you know that the meat is not going to make demons come into you. You're a child of the one true living God. Right? But the moment you tell me, Sister Julie, if you ever come in here and you say, Mike's talking about how he trapped a rabbit. Oh, I didn't know you guys trying to raise rabbits. Y'all trying to raise rabbits on your little hobby farm over there? No, I, we're not really raising it for meat. There's something we haven't told you, Pastor Doug. Uh, you know, and you start going in how you trapped that rabbit because you are trying to have a conceive later on you know, in your later years and it's still possible. I'm not trying to go into your private lives here. But you see, now we got a problem. Right? We, we'd have a problem. The whole church community would be like, yeah, that, 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 that's not right. I mean, if you think that that rabbit really has something to do with that. you know. Now we're laughing about it, but friends, I'm trying to help you apply in a balanced way the truths of what we just learned. Don't apply religious significance to those symbols and you completely use those for God's glory or you want. In other words, eggs are part of God's creation. Rabbits are part of God's creation. And being the apex of God's creation in Genesis, we as man are to not only have dominion over these things, but we are also free to responsibly, that's the key word, use them as informed Christians through evangelical obedience and enjoy them within the traditions and the customs of our family so long as they conform to the law of God. 1 John 3, 4, Romans 5, 13, plainly teaches us that any lack of conformity unto the law of God is a transgression of it, and it is a sin. This, I'm going to say something here, and this may offend some Christians, but there are some Christians, I believe, that are dangerously close of taking some of these things and violating God's law. Especially around Christmas time. There's a lot of things, symbols and other things that are taken that in other words a Christian I believe has liberty to use and they're, they're adding to them significant religious significance and making them elements of worship. And there is no command in Scripture, no warrant to make them an element of worship and give them 
that sort of significance. You might as well go back. And it's, it's astonishing to me in the Reformed community especially, who Calvin and other men, brothers and sisters, have fought these battles. You might as well go back to the rosary beads. You might as well go back to the, the lighting of the candles and the incense and all the other foolishness. Why are you stopping? Because all of those, especially in the Roman Catholic community on the Norman principle side, are sitting back and they're going, they're just tapping their fingers. They're going, you poor Protestants. Why did you ever fight the battle to begin with? You're already halfway back home. Just keep on coming back. You see, we have to be consistent in our application of the regulative principle. So there's your application of what to do in your personal lives at home and your communities. Be careful of your religious significance that you're applying to such things that that have become traditions in our culture, have even become traditions in the church. An egg should be an egg. A rabbit is just a rabbit. Now, the question would be, should our church observe Easter? What about here collectively when we gather on the Lord's Day? Are there rules for us gathering for worship at the church on this day, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, or any other Sunday for that matter? Well, the simple answer is absolutely yes, there are rules. And I feel as though I've already been clear on this point. I don't wish to repeat myself at great length. However, do allow me to briefly recap it with this expression of the biblical truth that I read earlier. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination of devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way, any other way not presented in the Holy Scripture. And so this is what we ought to practice and we ought to teach. I'm going to close with this. Let us always be sensitive to one another's conscience in areas such as this. We're all at different places, brothers and sisters. We are growing. We are sanctifying. Our church is a confessional church. It speaks very clearly of what's going to take place here at church. We have the regular principle of worship to help guide us and to grow and to learn from in humility, but yet firmness. But let us always be sensitive to one another's conscience in these areas as other people are growing and take heed to the words given to us by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 2 and 3. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and that acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. And I think that could be summed up, as A.J. was saying, with humility. Let us be reformers, as Machen was saying earlier. Let us be willing to challenge, ask questions, dig deeper, and be respectful uh, to one another's conscience and where we're at in our walk with the Lord. Amen. Thank you for your patience. I know that was a fire hydrant of information. And that's why I gave you the handout, so you could just kind of take it and digest it. Would love to hear your thoughts, how you've worked through some of the, these things. There are some amongst us here in this church that have... Uh, you know, done what Macon did. And, and I'm so thankful that I'm around brothers and sisters who can walk through those types of things in a patient and a mature way. What a blessing and a, a true mark of, of, of Christ's work in your life. Let us close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us and how you wish to be worshipped. We thank you, O God, that, Lord, you have given us clear direction on the truth 
and the power of Christ's resurrection. You have given us a picture of his death, Lord, uh, its significance in the redemption and the forgiveness of our sins through your means of grace, the Lord's Supper. We thank you how through the Lord's Supper as well, Almighty God, we have a continued hope presented before us in the promise of Jesus that he has risen from the dead and that he will return someday. And we thank you, God, that through this simple means of grace, we are constantly and consistently anchored to the great hope that we have in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the first fruit, your scriptures say, and the hope that we have that someday our bodies, although may be laid in the ground, may see death, Lord, we will be risen again. This is a great hope of the Christian faith. Lord, it is not borrowed from other religions. It is the one true consistent fact that Jesus was incarnate from glory above, He come, he walked this earth, Lord, he died, and he is now not here. His body is not here. It is in heaven, a place, a a realm, Lord, which is fitted uniquely for his glory and for his presence. But someday he will come back in that resurrected body. Unlike the other false gods and all the mythologies that surrounded the hocus pocus of them uh, raising from the dead year after the year and, and just the silly foolishness of inconsistent and illogical deductions that can be made from that, we serve the one true and living Savior. And we bless you, O God, that you have implanted us the seed of faith, which as we learned last week is the foundation from which we can explore all such traditions, all such questions as we have here today. And walk not in fear, but walk with humility and, O oh God, with an open heart to have you pour into us and teach us and to disciple us, Lord, so that we can be salt and light, not only in the highways and the byways, but even within our own church and family context. We bless you and we thank you, Father. And we ask that you would keep us, preserve us until that very great end and day when we are risen. We are risen with the multitude of saints and caught up in glory to be with you forever in heaven. We thank you and we bless you. In Jesus' holy name we ask, amen.